Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com slash easter24. This is the Scandal of Reading podcast. Join Jessica Hooten-Wilson, author of The Scandal of Holiness, and her co-host, Claude Acho, author of Reading Black Books, and Austin Cardi, author of The Pastor's Bookshelf, for inspiring conversations about why Christians should be reading great literature. In each episode, the hosts will also be dialoguing with writers about books they love and why these books matter for the life of the believer. All right. I really like this question. Um, and not just because it's mine, but because I think it's a really great one. And this is the hidden gem question. So what's one book that you love, but no one seems to have ever heard of? Austin, you want to get us started? I absolutely do, because I love this question so much. Uh, because, you know, for the very reason your question implies, uh, the two books that I have, I kind of serve as somewhat of an evangelist for, uh, simply because nobody seems to have ever heard of them. Uh, the first one I'll note is a book called Carry My Bones uh, by writer J. Wes Yoder. Uh, to date, it's the only novel that uh, he has written. Um, it was released in 2006. Uh, and as is the case with the other book I'll mention momentarily, too, my connection to it is somewhat autobiographical. Um, long, long time ago, um, I spent a season kind of traveling and speaking in churches, and I had a uh, speaking representative that uh, was based in Nashville, and Jay West uh, is, is his son. And it just so happened that the the weekend that I was, uh, or the week that I was in town, uh, to kind of uh, determine moving in that direction, um, was the weekend that, that Jay West was releasing this book, and um, and he was in Nashville uh, for a book signing. And so I picked up a copy, and it sat on my shelf for at least a year, maybe longer. And then I picked it up and um, it's just, it's a really, really great uh, Southern novel. Um, it's a young writer finding his voice. Um, and uh, it's one of those books that um, just, I, I so deeply enjoyed and found um, moving and, um, and, and thought provoking. It marked an important move in my literary journey too away from um, uh, stuff that was much more commercial fiction uh, into some more literary fiction, even as somebody who had done my undergraduate degree in literature. At the time, I was also trying to make it as a commercial fiction writer, and I was reading a whole lot of genre fiction. Uh, and, and this was a, a good book that kind of brought me back into some more literary fiction. Uh, so uh, my first hidden gem recommendation is Carry My Bones by J. Wes Yoder. So Austin, can I press you about why it is that you used to be a famous speaker? Because it's kind <laughs> of like figuring out that Claude used to be on American Idol. <laughs> Which I was not. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, were you on American Idol? No, no, no. no, no. Okay. no. You know, okay. they asked, but I said no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, your, um, your secret past. 
Yeah, well, so I was, I was, I was not a famous speaker. I just said I was a speaker. Famous is much, much different. But a hundred million years ago, I was on the show Survivor, um, <laughs> and uh, and so um, very shortly after the show had aired, um, it became known that that my faith was important to me, and I started getting invited to a lot of places to speak. So most of what I was doing in that little era, speaking. Uh, related that is was in churches um, and so uh, Jay West's father Wes Yoder uh, is the founder of Ambassador Agency in, in Nashville and uh, just one of the kindest most solid uh, human beings uh, and, and uh, followers of Jesus I've ever met to be honest with you um, I, mm. I couldn't speak more highly of, of, of him even though I've not been doing anything with him for well over a decade at this point but um yeah, that's why it was uh, it was on the heels of, of my little 10 year old survivor. See, but it's kind of fun because when I was, you know, I used to do like teaching college classes and they suddenly find out stuff like I spent Thanksgiving at Jeremy Irons house with Jeff Bridges. And they're like, oh, you're amazing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you got to like throw these little gems out. Yeah. There. I mean, that's the question, right? We're, we're trying to unearth these hidden gems. Yeah. Because, per, show off the intrigue. <laughs> From our past lives and our past yeah. selves. Okay. So my, my hidden gem was really, it's going to sound like a boring novel, but it's so good. It's by Rumor Godden in this house of breed. And the reason I had picked it up is because it's by this 1960s novelist, Catholic woman novelist. And I had studied Catholic fiction and, and theology at Baylor. So I thought I was pretty well versed in Catholic novels of the 20th century. Uh, Moriac, Bernanos, Waugh, Green, you know, Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy. And had never heard of most of these women. So these men continued to be taught in graduate programs, but the women Catholic novelists writing at the same time who were just mm -hmm. as popular as them, whose works were adapted into film, who were, you know, best-selling authors have not continued to be taught or their works continued to be published. So it's a major oversight. So I started trying to read some of these. There's other ones, you know, Carol Hauslander, Alice Curtin. There's a lot of these women novelists, but I started with Rumor Godden and was blown away by In This House of Breed. I could not believe it was not taught to me earlier. It just takes place in a small convent in Britain. And it sounds like it's boring because it's this real slow meditative life, but the spiritual reality is so thick there. And it's real people, not goody two shoes, not, um, you know, just saints in training or anything. It's, it's real people trying to pursue an eternal, meaningful life. And, um, I, I woke my husband up probably midway through the novel because I was crying at this one moment that I won't reveal because it's so good. Um, but I just woke him up and I just started reading it out loud and I was like, I'm looking at Jesus. Like, is anybody else looking at Jesus? Like, this is amazing. Mm, wow. <laughs> um, it was so beautiful and so moving. And I'm like, I'm tearing up just thinking about it again. It's just, it, it made me want to be holier. It made me want to be listening more to him, to think about obedience, to recognize that each of us had different callings. Um, it was just, it was gorgeous. So. Wow. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> That's a jam. Yes, yeah. I, I, yes. I look forward to it finding my way to that um well i've now bought like five copies for people so i'll send you one hey all right all right come on 
Um, so my my hidden gem, um, it, it's a book that I, I think was I think was popular when it when it released, but I just I, I have not encountered anybody who who has read it. Um, so it's it's kind of like an in between gem. Uh, and given how popular sci-fi and fantasy is, I'm just surprised I haven't met people who've read this book. And the book is called The City in the City uh, by China Mielville. Um, this came out in uh, 2010. And it reminded me when I read it, um, uh, it reminded me also of uh, Inception because Inception, the film, also came out in 2010. This this book is a sort of noir um, uh, sci-fi kind of fantasy mystery. It is really well written. So so I'll say if you like that genre and you like um, and you like kind of the literary side of things, I, I, I was really satisfied by the book. But essentially, there is um, sort of two planes of existence that are happening within this city that if you know um, how to look in the right way, you can see these two cities meeting and overlapping in the same sort of sphere. And so there's a, a series of um, crimes or murders specifically that happen. And so this, this detective um, has to sort of figure out where and how these worlds are meeting and then has to kind of navigate all of that. So I just remember reading this and just thinking like, this is like one of, my most enjoyable reading experiences I've ever had. And I've yet to encounter anyone in flesh and blood that had read this novel. I haven't read it since 2010, but, but I think it would stand up. And so that is my, my hidden gem, the city in the city by China Mielville. Love it. We should do a book exchange. We should, that that would be cool on this one. Yeah. hundred percent. No, I love it. Like I say, I love this question so much, you know, and the other one that I, I often will, I recommend to folks in this vein that nobody seems to have ever heard of. Um, there's a book called The Preservationist by David Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, having mentioned just a minute ago that long back I had started trying to make it as kind of a commercial fiction writer, and that was what I really, really deeply wanted to do. And we're talking 20 years ago now. Um, and uh, I remember landing... Uh, a literary agent and being over the moon about it. Uh, and at the time he, he was um, an associate agent at a, at a small boutique firm. It's my, my, my good friend, Scott Hoffman. And he had just sold uh, his kind of first big deal was a book by this person, David Maine. And it was a retelling of uh, no one, the flood, a literary retelling. And it had come out to rave reviews. And, um, and so to me, to get to go buy a book that was in the bookstore by my literary agent, you know, it was, <laughs> it, it was, it was this amazing experience. But so this book, it had just critical acclaim, and so did the second book that followed it, a book called Fallen, that was a retelling of Cain and Abel. Mm. Uh, but they never really found any commercial success. Mm-hmm. And he went on to a few years later write a book uh, called The Book of Samson, which is of course a retelling of the Samson story. Um, and then did one other novel and has just kind of disappeared. Um, wow. And so this is the writing is absolutely exquisite. The verbal energy in, in, in his writing is is remarkable. Um, the the imagery um, and just, you know, as, as as a pastor, of course, at the time I wasn't a pastor, but someone who, you know, has read, you know, uh, Genesis one through 11 many times. And, and you know, um it's just, it's an interest and, and, and his sense of course, read a whole lot of, you know, biblical exegesis and uh, commentary on uh, 
on the story of, of the flood and, and other ancient Near Eastern tales of, of, of the flood. Um, this is a book that has stuck with me through the years. Um, and while it's autobiographical in nature, because I have that connection to it, it's also just a great book in and of itself that I wish more people knew about. So The Preservationist mm. by David Maine. All right. That's a great one. And on that note, we'll end another great Q&A um, chat session and transition to a wonderful interview. Stay tuned. This podcast is sponsored by Brazos Press. Brazos Press publishes books that creatively draw upon the riches of the Christian story to deepen our understanding of God's world and inspire faithful reflection and engagement. A Brazos Press book that I recommend is The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth by Beth Allison Barr. In the book, Barr shows that the biblical womanhood isn't biblical, but was born in a clearly definable historical moment, and she presents a better way forward for the contemporary church. Get 30% off and free shipping at bakerbookhouse.com. Welcome, all of my listeners, to another episode of The Scandal of Reading. I'm really delighted that I get to do this. I find such joy in getting to have conversations with people that I respect and admire, and today especially, I'm getting to know Patty Callahan Henry, who is the author of Becoming Mrs. Lewis. I'll let her talk a little bit about herself in a second. And I invited her on today to get to talk about Till We Have Faces, because we both love C.S. Lewis's novel, The Myth Retold, and we will get to unpack that novel today. So Patty, thanks for joining us. Do you mind introducing yourself to everybody? Hi, Jessica. I am so happy to be here with you, for those of you out there. Um, we met at a C.S. Lewis conference and immediately we're like, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> so if I could just talk to you every day, I'm sure I would have a much brighter outlook on the world. Um, you are such a bright light, my friend. So I am Patty Callahan Henry. I am a novelist um, and I wrote contemporary novels until about six years ago when I became fascinated with Joy Davidman, um, who is C.S. For those of you who don't know, she is the very incredibly complicated and definitely improbable wife of C.S. Lewis. And so that set me off on historical fiction, um, kind of pivoted in my career. So right now I write historical fiction and that is who I am. I didn't realize that was the impetus for you writing this. I kind of assumed because I haven't known you very long that this was just your genre. Like you do historical fiction. No. So my first nine novels are contemporary. Oh and okay. and before I was a novelist, I was a nurse. So it, there were, there have been a couple pivots along along the way, as in your life. Mm-hmm. And that pivot, when it happened, it was such a fascinating kind of moment for me because I was older. I've been writing novels for ten or fifteen years, and to say I'm completely changing genres felt not terrifying, but you know, a mm-hmm. little wobbly. Um, when you're doing all right in the area that you are in, but Joy Davidman was irresistible. And mm-hmm. so I, I couldn't ignore her. I just, yeah. she would not leave me alone. And I know that sounds strange, but so I wrote this novel becoming Mrs. Lewis in secret for a couple wow. years while I did I my research. Yeah. So I, I find this genre really interesting. I read Hemingway's wife and then there was a, um, the Paris wife. Yes, I read The Paris Wife. That's what it was. Yeah, about Hemingway's yeah wife. that's my friend Paula I, McLean. Oh, you know yeah. Paula? Okay. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. Um, so 
what was it about Joy Davidman? What what was it? I mean, I know we're going to talk about C.S. Lewis, but I just have to know, like, yeah. what drew you to her as a subject? Well, when I first thought about writing about it, I thought, I want to write this love story. Very much like the Paris White. Like this kind mm-hmm. of doomed, except in this case, redemptive love story. Mm-hmm. You know, Hemingway and his first wife, Hadley, that was not a redeemed love story. That was right. just flat out tragic. And so I want, I was like, I want to write this really amazing love story. And, and I knew a lot about Lewis. I'm a preacher's kid. I've been reading Lewis since I was a child, mm-hmm. but I didn't know that much about joy. So I, like most people believed that she, what all, the only thing I'd seen, which was Shadowlands. Mm-hmm. Um, and that she was this American woman who just showed up in England Mm -hmm. and Lewis fell in love with her and she had one kid and they got married. Mm -hmm. So I thought I want to tell that story from her point of view, because if you watch Shadowlands, she's dying the whole movie and it's completely told from Lewis's kind of world perspective and how it affected his faith and his work. And I wanted it from her point of view. Well, then I started researching her and I was like, are you kidding me? This is not just a love story. This is one of the most fascinating, complicated women I have met on paper. And she, born and raised in New York, genius, um, Mensa genius. She could read when she was three years old. She could play Chopin by ear. She won the Yale Younger Poets Award. She graduated from college when she was 16, I think, 15. She graduated from graduate school um, and did her thesis when she was 18 from Columbia. She was a flat out genius and, um, and she was an atheist and she was a communist for a little while and she was married with two kids mm-hmm. in New York. So here yeah. we have this complicated woman who has never left New York for her whole life, except for six months when she wrote screenplays in Hollywood. And then we have our CS, beloved C.S. Lewis, the Oxford Don, who had never left England or Ireland except for the six months he fought in the war in France. And so here we have these two people. How did they possibly come together to change not only C.S. Lewis's life, but the last decade of his work? And that's when I took off running with the novel that was much more than a love story and was also a story about, which is what Two We Have Faces is about, yes. finding your finding your true self. Yeah, I'm, I definitely want to read passages from that because I found that beautiful how Thank you. your, your writing about their relationship actually elucidated Till We Have Faces for me. Like, I know it's fictionalized, but just getting to have the story behind the story was really lovely. well. So we I, have faces. I can't wait to ask you, like, how much of that is is true or not true? Yeah. Um, and one of the things that had never been talked about before, because it hadn't been found until about I think six years before I started the novel, was a, a lost box of love sonnets that Joy Davidman wrote to C.S. Lewis. So about six, six years before I started writing the novel, a box was found in um, an old family friend's house. Her son was helping an old family friend clean out this house and found a box of 300 unpublished poems, short stories, letters, documents. But among them were the 45 love sonnets to C.S. Lewis. So it it highlighted and spurred a different kind of story 
than we might have had if those love sonnets hadn't been found. And like you said, they feed in to Till We Have Faces. Oh, okay. So her sonnets, was she writing them when they got married? Was she writing them before? Was it like a pining away at Lewis, the way you kind of depict her? That's a great question. So um, she compiles them for him, 45 love sonnets for C.S. Lewis. And she writes a letter to him. So they were all in one folder. And on the folder was the word courage. There is some debate, um, not for me or for Don W. King, who is a expert on her poetry, Mm -hmm. about whether she ever showed it to him. But she did. And I, the, 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 cause there's a letter to him at the front that okay. says, yeah. you know, dear Jack, here are some, and it's a funny little ditty that she wrote. Mm-hmm. But what she did is many of them were written during their relationship before. And here's the interesting part before they, she quit writing them when she started writing till we have faces with him. So those love sonnets and all the pining and the angst and will you ever love me back and must it begin (laughs) again, Um, all of this like angsty vulnerability and neediness and desperation for him to move past philia, friendship, and love her, all of that ended with Till We Have Faces. Oh, wow. writing them. But some of the sonnets, so they're all sonnets. Um, which is a very strict poetry form mm-hmm. for those who don't know. All of the sonnets, um, not all of them she wrote after she met him. There's a few mixed in there that she had written as a younger woman, but she mixed them into this kind of narrative arc about falling in love. Wow. That is amazing. So, okay. So who is Lewis at this point? So she comes over, we know she's going through the divorce and you yeah. set all of that up in your novel and who is he before he writes Till We Have Faces? Like at what point in his career and life are we looking at? So we're spanning their 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 relationship spans a decade. But if we're going to talk up until um, if we're going to talk up until he started Till We Have Faces, that was in March, March of 55. She shows up in England in 1952 for the first time and moves there in 1953. Okay. So they start corresponding in 1950. And then she comes to visit in 50, late 52, August of 52, and moves there in September of 53. So I'm going to kind of set the stage for Till We Have Faces. So at this point in 1954, C.S. Lewis has left Oxford to become a professor at Cambridge. And interestingly, both colleges have the same name. They're just pronounced mm-hmm. differently. So he was a uh, he was a tutor at Maudlin College in Oxford when they met. And he took a job as a professor at Magdalen College in Cambridge. And he was constantly going back and forth because he always lived at the Kilns. He had rooms at Cambridge, but he is going back and forth. So at this point, Joy lives in London. She has moved there permanently. And she is constantly writing letters back and forth to her husband, Bill. Her boys are in school and they are 10 and eight kind of age. But she often, when he comes back, she often spends time with him in Oxford and stays at the kilns. At this point, she is divorced. So now we're in March of 1955. And Lewis comes home for 
probably a spring break. That's what we would call it. And she Mm -hmm. stays with him at the kilns and she writes a letter. The reason we know how it started is she wrote a letter to her ex-husband and essentially said, um, poor Jack, he has dried up. So we, he has, he has more time on his hands than he did at Oxford. Um, but he feels like he's out of story ideas because till we have faces is Lewis's last work of fiction. It's the Mm -hmm. last work of fiction he wrote. And she kind of said something to the effect of the poor deer has dried up. And so we sat around, drank a whiskey and started kicking around some ideas. Wow. Um, Her exact words are here. I'll read them. One night Jack was lamenting. He couldn't get a good idea for a book. We kicked a few ideas around until one came to life. Then we had another whiskey and we bounced it back and forth between us. The next day, without further planning, he wrote the first chapter. I read it and I made some criticisms. So she's obviously living in another bedroom, but that is where they start working together on this novel. So that's kind of the stage setup. Yeah. And I love, I mean, I loved reading that section. I mean, the whole beginning section of her life was all completely new to me, but then reading. And most people, Jessica, yes, most people, they don't. I mean, all they know is Deborah Winger, right? Right. Right. Yes. They don't know her conversion story, which is fascinating. And oh, so fascinating. Just her courage through her marriage and it's, it's end and um, yep. But when they, when you get to that episode where you're actually writing this out, which is just so cool to get to hear the letters that inspired you to do this. Um, but basically she's encouraging him to go back to an idea that he said that he had, right? He said, I could write another allegory like Screwtape or Pilgrim or another children's books, but those seem to have right, run their course. And she says, what myth do you think of the most when you think of myth at all? And he said, Cupid and Psyche. Yeah. Right. But she, oh, gave, she gave up yeah. on it. Yeah. So, so why did, so she encourages him to return to this. Why does she encourage him to return to this? I mean, what does she have any stake in this narrative? The Cupid and Psyche? Oh, myth? of course. Okay. So there's a couple of things to know that Lewis um, tried to approach this myth from different avenues throughout his life. He tried a poetry sequence. He tried, I think a children's, but he had, he had approached this myth in different ways through his whole life. And she she encouraged him to just do what he did, which is a myth retold. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the other backstory to know is both of them were completely educated in and completely fascinated by mythology. So they were both very, what's the word I'm looking for? But they were both very knowledgeable and could talk about and did talk about all the time the power of myth. And if you know anything about Lewis's conversion story, he actually said, um, you know, I finally realized that Christ is the true myth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so for him myth and for her mythology was always something they talked about, something they dove into. So this was a natural um, project that they could combine their knowledge but also the hidden parts of what were going on, what was going on between them. Um, Andrew Lazo is a real expert in this. And he says um, that so much of their hidden love, just like 
Oriole's hidden love for Bardia is hidden in, in between the lines. So not only are they taking all their knowledge of mythology, all their love of mythology, but something is happening between them that is, is, is neither one of them can put into words. Joy had tried to put it into sonnets. And Lewis, of course, was cut off from it at the time. But here it goes into a fiction story about mythical love and God mm-hmm. and the gods and the bigger questions. So, yeah. yes, that's, that is why this was the right time for what Lewis calls far and away my best novel. Yeah. Well, and I, you mentioned that she helped him write that, which is something I didn't know until you and I met. But when the two of them are talking and she starts asking him about this because she starts wondering, like, did you see me as Oriole, the ugly one in love with Bardia who will never return her love? Um, and he wants to title it Bareface. Right? Yes. And she, she, of course, doesn't seem to think that that's a title. And at one point you said, like, in her thoughts, she's saying, take me in your arms and set me down on that bed and make love to me. And I thought, yep. that would be so hard for me to write, like about C.S. Lewis. I know, <laughs> it was so hard for me to write. But if you read her poetry, she's way more explicit than that. So that is a toned down um, kind of emotional truth from Joy Davidman that 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 sounds like crazy to talk about C.S. Lewis that way. But if you read her poetry, it's toned down. Wow. Yeah. And she says that she sees more than a glimpse of herself in the story. And she yes. wants to ask Jack, is this creation of me? And he, and they talk about like how Oriole eventually came to self-knowledge, self-love. These are your words. Love for the gods, a reunion with Psyche. Much destruction had been wrought along the way. And as they're talking about this, yep. this is probably my favorite line that you that you write here in this episode, at least, is she touches his arm and says, Jack, as it's always been, we use stories to make sense of the world. Oh, isn't it so true, though? <laughs> I don't know that. if she ever said that because, of course, you know, there's not a stenographer following around their, their every conversation. <laughs> but it sounds like something she would say, and I know it's something they both believed, and it's something I believe and something you believe, yeah. right? Yeah. That's what story yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. And do you see? Do you see that with Till We Have Faces? Like, what are, what? How is that story helping make sense of something in the world? What is the mystery you see there that like Lewis and Joy were trying um, to explicate or highlight? Uh, part of it is the four loves. All four loves mm-hmm. are built into that novel. They were both in 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 philia and friendship at the moment. Yeah, it do you mind the, defining just in case people aren't C.S. Lewis aficionados what the four loves are? Okay, you're gonna have to help me. So we have eros, which is romantic love, philia, which is friendship love, agape, or I've heard it pronounced different ways, but that's love with the divine. And what am I missing? Uh, the the uh, the piety, the love of neighbor and friend, but I can't. Not yes. friend, um, neighbor, yes. like neighbor, goodwill. Right. <laughs> I can't remember. I should have that in we'll put it in the show notes. Um, so, so in the novel, they work through all four of those and it's the first novel as they're working through this, you know, sub these subconscious things in, in their relationship that it's the first time Lewis wrote about women from the mouth of a woman with a woman. 
Yeah. So, and it's the last fiction book he wrote, like I said. So there's this, there's this shift in him of, of narrative drive, of point of view, of collaboration. And, you know, we both know Diana Glyer is an expert on, on mm-hmm. collaboration and the inklings and so many more, but they were collaborating and, and he had been collaborating with his men friends mm-hmm. from Tolkien to Charles Williams. And here he is writing about a woman from a women, woman's point of view with a woman. Yeah. And I, I know we don't want to explore too much that hideous strength, but just briefly, I want yeah. to just suggest to people, there's such a difference in this, which should be seen more as his final say on what the feminine is. Yes. More than his earlier work, that hideous strength, almost 15 years beforehand, in which he's writing only with men and trying to say things about women that instead yes. are just condescending. And I think he would have revoked after knowing Joy. And then also at this time, he's really good friends with Dorothy L. Sayers. Right. I think those two strong women in his life made him change his view. Like, I think this is just such a complete retelling of that myth of what women are. <laughs> yes. Into this one. Yes. And at the time, he was also in relationship with a lot of really strong women. Dorothy L. Sayers, his mother, Flora, was an incredibly strong woman. So it's not like Lewis didn't have women relationships, but he didn't have them romantically like joy. You know, this kind of iron on iron, strength on Mm -hmm. strength, wit on wit. I mean, they used to play Scrabble in every language. And when she (laughs) dies in, in his book of grief observed, I mean, he says, what was she not Hmm. to me? Hmm. So, and, and I'm not positive who said it, but I think it was Charles Williams who said, no, Owen Barfield, who said that what, Lewis thought about anything was in everything he wrote. Hmm. So if you look at Till We Have Faces and you have questions about what Lewis thought about women, read it, right? He answers it himself in the novel. Well, especially with the care. I mean, you have these two characters, Oriole and Psyche. And and, and what's the other princess? What's her name? Mm-hmm. Ra something? Ra something. Mm-hmm. Um, and these, they don't fall easily into categories. No. Which I loved because unlike that hideous strength where it's like Mother Dimble, right? You always have the mother figure. And then you have um, Hardcastle, like the hardcore feminist. You have these almost stereotypical ideas of women. Well, you have flat, flat, one-dimensional characters. And until we have faces, nobody's one-dimensional. Oriel almost knows that she's lying to herself as she mm-hmm. is bitter with the gods, right? And and there's this, as much as you want to be angry at her for what she does to Psyche, you also have this, and it's I feel this way about Joy. Sometimes I'm angry at the choices she made, and yet you have this great tenderness for the brokenness inside that hasn't yet seen their true face in Christ. Mm-hmm. And so you, they act in these bitter ways or these kind of um, armored ways uh, at, until they can see that they can, just like in the novel, take off their veil, 
or their false self to be, to see their true face in Christ. And I mean, that's essentially, there's, there's, as with any great work of fiction, there's thousands of layers until we have faces. But the, the, the one that strikes me, not as a professional, but as a reader the most, is that idea of the true self and the true face and, mm-hmm. and being willing to take off the veil to look at the ugly parts. Because once you do, because when she does that, when she takes off her veil to look at the ugly parts, she sees Ungit, the goddess. Yeah. But she's unwilling to see that because she sees herself as ugly. So there's this this that's why he wanted to call it bare face and it's yes. called till we have faces. So, which, which is, yeah, it's lovely. You know, I've heard some people talk negatively about the fact that Oriole is so ugly. Um, and redival is pretty, but she misuses it into ugliness. Cause it's like the superficial yes. beauty, but what it, it seems like what Lewis is doing with this idea of what is beautiful or what is ugly has so much more to do with the soul of the person. Yes. Right. And so he's doing and the bitterness, her bitterness, right? It makes her. Yeah. And yes, they they do joke that she's ugly. There's this caricatureness of like how much she looks like a dog or, you know, a really hideous man. So it's not that it's not literally she's literally ugly, but she doesn't understand what her true face is. And therefore she can't get past the ugliness. She can't get past the material view of things. Right. Well, we and have and to remember he, too, she's narrating the book. Right? Yeah. And she doesn't see clearly. So uh, yeah, how I, ugly is she really? I, I you know what? I also thought that was so genius because he writes like 90% of the book from her blind perspective. Because yes. it's only the very last scenes that we get in which he overturns that. Right. It's not like she's writing this in hindsight, being like, I was so wrong. I misunderstood. She writes most of it being like, I'm justified. I was right. I was ugly. Psyche was wrong. And you, you, she writes it against herself, not knowing that it's against herself the whole time until the end. And the end is just this beautiful unturning, this like vision of redemption. You get me chills. Yeah. (laughs) Andrew says that um, it's a bit like screw tape. Right, this kind of reversed um, lie yes. of who she really is. So she's lying to herself. She's lying to us. Mm-hmm. She's bitter. She's jealous, um, and she's rationalizing. And when we rationalize, we lie. Yes, you know, yes, often. Right. So I, I, there's just this great beauty in the removal of of the false, the false look. So yeah, yeah, I love and, that you saw that I, too. Well, especially I was thinking about it in terms of like the book is unveiling us to ourselves. Uh, if right? you take the time to read read it, not as a quick read of a myth retold, but if you really, it's one of those books you have to read almost a few times. Yeah, um, I've read it. I've listened to it on audio. I've you know listened to. Andrew's podcast on it. There's it's there is never ending like onion layers to peel back. And so I feel like what we see is a mirror of what we need to see because Mm -hmm. there's so much in it. Well, one of one of the things that I've said often about fiction, I'm going to use it here too, is like the best books are not mirrors. The best books are icons that read us. 
Ah, oh, exactly. I love right? that. I'm so I- stealing that from you. <laughs> yes. Because I think that that's what this book does. I mean, it, it's, it's, and that whole image of the lantern and like seeing the truth versus the blindness of the dark. And um, the best books do that to you, that the worst books just hold up a reflection. You see what you want to see and that's right. all you see. But b- right. books like this, it holds a lantern up to you. It shows yourself in a new light. It reads you. And I, of all of his works, I feel like this one does that the most. If you're willing Right. If you're willing, if you are, you know, there's, there's certain times we can feel a ping like, Oh, Mm -hmm. I think that's me. And then they're like, no, I'm a very good person. It's not me. (laughs) But if we allow it to be like, Ooh, I think I do that. Or, or I see that. Or why am I carrying that bitterness? Or why am I arguing with the gods? And, and in the end, you know, she, she essentially says, um, I'm going to, you know, kind of twist this because I'm not looking exactly, but, you know, you, you don't have, you, you yourself are the questions. And Ooh. I love that, you know, like I'm looking for answers that already live in you <sighs> as the God. Oh. So I know. And, and so these things that ping us about our yeah. doubt or our bitterness or, you know, our argument with the gods um, mm-hmm. is unanswerable because it's only answered in, in the question. Oh, that's so good. And that's, yeah, it, you have to actually know, you have to know the person that's the answer. Yeah. It's not just a rational exactly refutation. It instead right. is. You don't take like them to court. Knowledge. Right. 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 Yeah. It can only be known through the story, through writing of the book itself. I mean, that's why she gets, you know, to the end and it's like no answer, but then meeting face to face, knowing Christ face to face, that's the answer to the question. Right. Right. Oh, so beautiful. Okay. I'm going to ask you one more Lewis question. Then I want to ask a personal question as we wrap up. So the Lewis question is in the, that hideous strength, he said, this is retelling everything I wrote in abolition of man. Okay. Do you think Till We Have Faces is a retelling of everything of Four Loves? Yes. Partially, okay. but only partially. Okay. But absolutely. I think I think it's a I don't think it's a retelling, I think it's a revisit. And I think okay. it's a revisit through his relationship with the woman he loves. Who he doesn't know he loves. Because her. So, Yeah, because yeah. Four Loves he wrote prior to his relationship with her, right? Oh yes. Or not or yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. I could. I didn't know if it was after he and the problem of pain. What is the? What is the? I'm. I'm, I don't know the exact date of the publication. This is. This says 1960. Is what it says inside mine. I know, but that's probably not a first edition, right? Well, that's. It just gives me the first copyright is 1960. Oh, it does. So then he must mm -hmm. have been writing that. Okay. So what, we'll which cut means, this out is, while I look it up. Um, <laughs> you're fine. Well, but what's fascinating to me. I false info. It, well, um, what it means to me is that through the discovery, if this is true, I love discovering things. I tell students all the time, I'm a co-learner. Like I, it's less about being the expert and never getting yeah. things wrong than it is about learning things because you're asking questions you don't know the answer to. So I'm asking a question I don't know the answer to in the hopes that I learned something. And I think I just did. So he was writing till we have faces as a way of uncovering things he thought he knew. 
Yes. And only in the process does he understand real charity, which leads him to also be able to have eros towards joy. And once that is fully experienced, he can write this that he probably yes. could not have written. So it's, and I think I yes. actually, sorry, I'm like just coming to a theory, Patty. This is not my plan, but like, no, you're, you're onto <laughs> something here. Let's write that. Let's write that. Let's write a book about this. Yes. Right. Because that hideous strength, he's retelling something he already knew. And that might be why there's so much flatness to the parable of the things he already knew. But till right. we have faces, he's in a relationship with a woman that leaves him in a place of questioning, like you said, and he's learning things he didn't know that leads to write this kind of book to unpack it after the story revealed to him these mysteries he couldn't pin down. And in The Four Loves, he says, yeah. which makes sense, that, you know, it's after, is, is some friendships can turn to love in the first 15 minutes and others grow slowly into love. love and, and that is love what it. had happened to him and Joy. And also in The Four Loves, he, he talks literally about Eros and, and yeah. you know, union. And he couldn't yeah. have written that before he, he was married no. to and with Joy Davis. He couldn't have because all he knew was either Storge writing letters to these people who were away yeah. from him. And then Philia, like that's all he knew before this. Yeah. Oh, I love it. That's so good. It's so beautiful. Well, I, I knew I wanted to talk to you, um, not only because your, your own book is just fascinating, but I knew that you could shed Thank light you. until we have faces, which is one of my favorite books too. Uh, can you, Thank you, last personal question. Can you tell me what you're working on right now? Oh gosh. Yes, I can. Well, you know, it, it's, it's funny because usually when I write a book, and it's out in the world and I tour with it or talk about it for a year or two. It doesn't go away by any means, but I, I don't, I'm not on the road with it or talking about it or, but becoming Mrs. Lewis, it, it, it's such a fascinating, never ending conversation. I mean, that book came out over four years ago. So, yeah. and we're talking about it fresh and anew all the time, but I do have a new book coming out in um, May of 2023. It is called The Secret Book of Flora Lee. Comes out with Simon oh, and wow. Schuster. Um, and I'll give you a very quick synopsis. I, you know, I believe like you that that stories change us and um, shift inside of us. And I too, which is why I love Joy and Jack so much, I too am kind of a mythology fairy tale geek. Mm. In high school, instead of taking something useful like Spanish or French, so I could travel, I took Latin, which is an unspeakable. We've talked about this, because yeah. you know, your kids are taking it too. Yeah. It's really important. <laughs> but when you take Latin, you learn about you know the, the mythology that rises up inside that language. This is a story that takes place in 1939 England during what is called Operation Pied Piper, which is when they took all the children from the big cities and they were evacuated to the country, some to even to Canada and America, but we're going to focus on the ones that were sent to the country very much like the four children in Narnia. That was called, they don't say that in, in Narnia, but that was called Operation Pied Piper, where they sent children to the country. So when I was writing a, a chapter in my novel, Once Upon a Wardrobe, which explores the origins of Narnia, I got really interested in Operation Pied Piper and what that meant for children. Millions of children were sent away from the cities to live with strangers. Some had incredible experiences, some had terrible experiences. 
My book is about two imaginary sisters named Hazel and Flora, who live in Bloomsbury, London, and are sent to the countryside of Oxfordshire in Binsey, which is a tiny medieval hamlet right on the other side of the River Thames from, from Oxford. And the older sister, Hazel, to keep the younger sister, who's only five years old, calm, she makes up a fairy tale world for the two of them. They escape there at night when they tell stories. Sometimes they play in the woodlands and pretend they're in Whisperwood. That is the name of their magical land, Whisperwood. While year goes by, the Blitz happens in London and Flora Lee disappears. It is assumed that she has drowned in the River Thames as she is only five years old. And Hazel believes that her baby sister, her little sister, has gone to look for Whisperwood and she blames herself. Then we jump ahead 20 years and Flora Lee has never been found. And Hazel worked in an antiquarian bookshop in London when a fairy tale collection from written by an American author comes into the store with original illustrations by a little nod to Narnia by Pauline Baines. And the book is called Whisperwood. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That is so cool. Oh, I'm already, I mean, I'm hooked. (laughs) It's very much, you know, about what we talk about. It's very much about the power of story. It's about how we use story. And it's how, you know, maybe story can bring us back together. Yeah, I I love your imagination. It's so uplifting. And you are so sweet. Well, I read a lot of fiction. I read a lot of stories. And your book was just such a beautiful relief every day to get to enter that world and be with these very virtuous, heroic characters who are facing problems. I mean, there's definitely problems, but they they face them in ways that I want to face them. And so I love to read that. Thank you, my yeah. friends. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it.